Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today, we're inside the Democracy Sausage Broom Cupboard with the ultimate insider and future host of Insiders, David Spears. The nation is gripped by fires and ravaged by drought, but don't mention climate change. Plus, David tells us about 20 years in the press gallery and how he feels about taking over the Insiders' hot seat. Then we turn to the Labor Review. Open and honest it may be, but will it solve the party's problems? That's today's Democracy Sausage. Welcome to Democracy Sausage, the podcast from ANU, which looks exactly at how the sausage is made and does so by combining the best experts at ANU uh, with some of those commentators and analysts, uh, the best of those on at Parliament House. And we have two of the best today, Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. She's my regular partner on Democracy Sausage. And the one and only David Spears, fresh from a 20-year career at Sky News Australia up in the press gallery and shortly to take up the prime role as host of the ABC's Brilliant Insiders program. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. Now, we've got a bit to cover today, including the general state of politics, the economy, Labor's review of its epic election fail, and of course, drought that goes on and bushfires. Maria, the country's on fire at the moment, unfortunately. There's some 50 fires burning in New South Wales. As we record, there's forecasts of absolutely dire conditions in the next 24 hours. Uh, but apparently, uh, one shouldn't mention climate change or the role that climate change might be having in the severity of the drought and the intensity of these fires. Yes, the government has been extremely defensive on the question of climate change, which has been put to them several times uh, over the weekend in particular. And um, and there's been some sort of discussion that we shouldn't be politicising this issue um, because, you know, it's currently a, a disaster and we're currently mm. fighting these fires. But I, I can't help but feel that this is just a, a tactic by the government to to shut down legitimate uh, sort of scrutiny of of their actions over the last uh, six years in particular and, and their record over the last 20. Yeah, David, it seems like what they're saying really is that any reflection on the role that uh, a change in climate might have uh, while these fires are going on, is an attempt to kind of score political points. David uh, Michael McCormack, I should say, the uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, head of the Nationals, was on AM this morning saying pretty much that, that uh, Adam Band and Richard Di Natale from the Greens are, 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 you know, sort of trying to make political capital out of the tragedy. Um, so I suppose it is a question, an interesting question of timing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical of all sides of politics. Uh, they all try to extract political capital whenever they can, Precisely. whatever the issue. And I do find whenever we see, and it is terrifying, this bushfire situation right now, but the debate becomes incredibly shrill incredibly quickly. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I, I get what Michael McCormack and others are suggesting that, sure, if Australia ended its emissions tomorrow, we wouldn't necessarily have a huge impact on climate change and global warming. These bushfires would mm. continue. We would still face this threat. So, you know, for Adam Bant to say it's all the government's fault for not doing enough on climate change is over the top. Equally, it's 
you know, completely um, ignorant of the government to suggest we shouldn't be debating this right now and shouldn't be looking at what is behind the severity and frequency of these bushfires now. So it just becomes, I think, incredibly shrill, incredibly frustrating. You can't not think about climate change when you see what's going on here and in California and so on. I also think there's a really interesting debate about how we live and where we live and mitigating, you know, the risks of, of bushfires in the in the way, um, you know, our our, um, our towns, our villages have have grown in, in these bushfire areas. And, and that's absolutely a role for government, mm. uh, you know, state, because, federal, local. Yeah, yep. because I mean, in some cases, some parts of the country will no longer be attractive to live in, and no one will want to buy land there and people will be stranded. So this is absolutely a role for government to manage. Well, well it is. And it's interesting that it happens in the context of the, you know, completely related crisis, which is the slow rolling crisis of drought itself. So, I mean, drought has been a, a huge issue um, as long as this one's been going on. We've had many droughts in Australia's history, but they seem to be getting worse, you know, drier and longer. Um, and of course, we see these Bushfires as one manifestation of that uh, of that sort of as as everyone says that of kind this of tinder box climate change yeah, yeah no correct uh, and look I think the, the government's um, step by step drought response has been fascinating to watch politically as well and I think their latest iteration announced just what a few days ago last week um, you know it has a lot of merit to it it tries to cover uh, all sorts of impacts of the drought from local businesses local communities childcare support all those sort of things. What we're still lacking is that long-term discussion around what sort of farming can we sustain, what sort of parts of arid Australia can be farmed. And this is a difficult discussion, but like the bushfire um, debate, if we're not having it now in the midst of this terrible drought, when are we going to really have it? It's a very good point, and and it is a very difficult discussion. It involves mm. significant change, particularly for some people most affected by it. And it's a change I would submit, it's a debate I would submit, that really needs to be led by the coalition and particularly by the national party. Yeah, and it's not as simplistic as saying, oh, let's just lower emissions. That's what I'm, uh, yes, that's an important debate to have, but this is also an important debate to have. What can and can't be farmed, uh, what... You know, uh, where should that occur? Are there areas that are just simply too marginal now? Are we keeping farms going that uh, have too many years out of yep. 10 that are likely to be in drought, even outside of... You know the sort of uh, drought pattern. Is yeah. it the role of government to say you can grow almonds, you can't grow almonds, you must grow? You know, maybe not. But what sort of government? What can government do in supporting and not supporting, incentivising and disincentivising different types of water use? Yeah, and and like I say, I think that does need to be led by the coalition because it, because the constituents that are most affected are going to be their constituents, mm. uh, and I think that's just a sort of a basic principle of politics that if you're going to sort of um, you know delve into these difficult debates and ask people to come along with you and f in some cases face quite. Um, because don't pretend these aren't the debates changes. going on around the farm table, right? Yeah. This is what's happening in these communities. This is the constituency of the national parties, you say. But if the national parties sort of not prepared that. to talk mm -hmm. about climate change, for example, is you know, is, is is sort of spends more energy kind of repelling the argument. I mean, you know, you'll get people to reluctantly admit, yes, I accept human induced climate change as an issue. But there's a lot of energy that goes into kind of essentially trying to hose down, if I could use a bad metaphor, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the debate rather than sort of rise to it and then move to, as you say, David, that next level, which is what are we going to do once mm -hmm. we accept that we have these changing conditions? And you're absolutely right. Like 
the way climate change is framed for the coalition, it's all, you know, sort of like risks and uh, like risks to our current way of life and risks to the way the economy is currently managed. And the reason why climate change is such a uh, bedeviling problem, which has now, you know, destroyed is it four prime ministers or yeah? <laughs> so <laughs> and yeah, a, and a few exactly. opposition leaders, frankly, precisely yeah. right. Is because climate change is actually not about the environment; it is about how human societies are governed, how their economies function in relation to the environment. That's why it's such a big political question. It's actually about a reorganization of how we we how we live and how we govern our societies, which is why it is resisted so viciously. But it's a disservice to these communities, the ones that are on the front line of this crisis, to not be thinking ahead and planning for them, the, the, the sort of opportunities that are coming their way and easing out and, and making it more... Um, I guess, civilised and uh, for those that can't maintain their lifestyles the way they used to because there's simply not the water anymore. There's simply not the resources yeah. anymore. I, and and uh, I saw a good sign of the uh, you know how entrenched the politics of this are when I heard an interview the other day um, and there was a farmer being interviewed and he was explaining his response to the drought package you were just talking about, David, and he was saying that, you know, look, this is a uh, you know pretty comprehensive package. We're pretty grateful for it. If Labor was in, we wouldn't be getting any of this, uh, but we're getting it. And I thought, well, hang on. Anthony Albanese, uh, very early on in this whole debate about the drought, pretty much gave the government a blank check. He said to the government, whatever you are prepared to do, you will have our support in in, in addressing this drought and providing assistance to farmers. So, um, you know, it wasn't exactly a factually correct statement by this farmer, but I guess it does reflect the very entrenched politics This gets in back the to the, the, the initial point I made about extracting political capital at every opportunity, even even natural disasters, crises, you know, mm. these um, traumatic experiences, there is political capital to be made and they're sure as hell making it. Yeah, mm. and I mean the, the nationals were at each other's throats with the libs only because three the, weeks ago over this precise issue. Yeah. 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 yeah, and and look, yeah, that, I mean the, the backstory on that, it uh, yeah, it really inflamed things, didn't it, a few weeks ago. The Nats were cranky. Uh, yeah. They were stamping their feet. They were threatening leaders and deputy leaders in their own party because Scott Morrison, as a Liberal Prime Minister, was getting too much credit for the drought response. Um, and because he effectively didn't consult with them enough or have them uh, sort of visible enough in the process. And you saw that corrected uh, with the with the most recent <laughs> announcement. We were standing there with about six Flanked nats behind yeah, him. Right. How many are there? You, looked, like a, looked like a country yeah, cricket Your turn to talk, David. Now over to you, Bridget. Anyone else want to have a crack here at this <laughs> press conference? Yeah, there was, there was certainly a few people there. David, you've been, you just as I was saying before, you're just coming to the end of a 20-year stint in yeah. the press gallery. You've been a good friend of mine. We've been colleagues for a long time in the press gallery. And on the press club board for a good deal of that time. Um, what, what are you – you're about obviously to go do this fantastic gig at Insiders and that involves yeah. moving to Melbourne from, yep. from Canberra. How are you feeling about that? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, look, excited uh, about the new job, excited about going to Melbourne. Um, I lived there very briefly when I was young but have not, you know, with the, the family, the kids and the dog and everything done the done yeah. living uh, in – well, uh, you know uh, – lived anywhere but Canberra really since we've had our uh, kids. So it's a whole new life change for me, uh, new job, new city. That's very exciting. But 
yeah, anxious, yes, because I've been, been very comfortable in the press gallery and in, in my job at Sky, but also in Canberra. I just, I love Canberra. Mm. You know, it would not have been my first choice to leave Three here. Three cheers for Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. don't hear that too often, certainly from non-Canberrans. Yeah. People love to rag That's because they just don't know. They don't live here and they don't, don't realise it it's a very different town. We're a real city people. Yeah, it, it, it's a different city to visit. It's a great city to visit, but a very different city to live in, yeah. don't you think, yeah. than yes. it is to visit. Yes, there's great things to do, go and see this and that and the memorials, the yeah. Uh, you know uh, all of that, but when you live here, it's it's got a terrific vibe. Hard to describe the natural environment here too is something I'll greatly miss. I love, uh, as you know, um, you know, running, riding, mm. getting out with the dog as well, getting on the mountain bike, and it, it's just there's no. And you can do that in you can be for, five for most places that you live in Canberra. Exactly. You can do that because just the sort of design of the place and the amount of yeah. bush around it. Yeah, no, it's magical, um, and so I will. I will miss that uh, greatly. I've tried to find somewhere in Melbourne that's got a few trees, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's it's a great town as yeah, well. No, it'll it's, be a lot of fun for different reasons, fun. but it's going to be interesting, I guess. Uh, you know, in this working for a different employer, a different media organisation, very different organisation. That's right. I've I've actually not worked uh, for the ABC before. I should get some tips from you uh, on the. <laughs> <laughs> everyone everyone says, "Oh, watch out for the um, you know the bureaucracy and so on at the ABC." Who knows if that's a reality or not? I'm looking forward to experiencing a bit of that. But I am attracted to the um, the fact that it is a national broadcaster, a public broadcaster. That I think it's an important institution. I think it does serve a really valuable role in our democracy. And that is part of the attraction for me um, is, is to be a part of that. Well, it's such a brilliant program inside as Great well. Program. It's I think it's the uh, the highest rating daytime television show the ABC does each week, and that's amazing when you think about. See how that. long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's in safe hands with you, but I mean, it, I just think it's remarkable that a, a politics program on a Sunday morning yeah. can people have get that out of level. bed to watch yeah. at nine o'clock on a Sunday. Yeah. Uh, to watch politics. Um, no, it's terrific. They're huge shoes to fill, uh, obviously from Barry Cassidy, but also Annabelle and Fran and those who filled yeah. in over the last six months. Um, you know, they're, they're enormous shoes to fill, which is <laughs> just somewhat daunting, but they're all great people. They've all been really supportive, uh, as have so many at the ABC, to um, – to the idea of a, a Sky News bloke coming over. So that's that's Well, really it hard. certainly has some reach. I was walking along a street in London only about 10 days ago and we're talking with a an ANU colleague. We were there doing some work and uh, this bloke went the other way and he, and he suddenly says, as, you know, a couple of paces behind me, he says, excuse me, are you Mark Kenny? And I said, <laughs> I, you know, I was somewhat shocked. We were mid-conversation. He said, uh, yeah. And he said, I said, who are you? And he said, oh, I just love Insiders, mate. I just love watching it. And I- <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And look, yeah, from what I'm told, I was chatting with Nikki Saver about this as well, the most unlikely people, people you would not think you mm. don't look like you follow politics, but they do and they watch that show uh, and, and they love it. And I think that's what, you know, it's, it's not um, yeah, the bubble watching. And, yes, that's an important part of the audience, but it is a lot broader than people think. Yeah, uh, and and that's that's terrific. It, it's bringing politics to all walks. It's giving people a digest of what's happened during the week. They may or may not follow it during the week, but they want to see on a Sunday morning what's gone on and a bit of intelligent analysis around it. And I think it treats politics uh, in an intelligent way, in a serious way, um, but has a bit of fun as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. I and we've just been talking about you know the regions and and and, and yeah. the ABC's reach into the regions. Of course, is extraordinary. It always has been such yeah. a vital service out in the rural and regional areas of Australia as well. So that's um, you know one of its great strengths. Also, it's not just about the city. It's not just about Canberra. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. So look, yeah. Uh, 
fair bit of pressure on the shoulders to do it justice, but I'm really looking forward to it and, um, yeah, giving it a good crack. It's quite a different uh, um, process, I suppose, or demands on you than, than you've been used to. I mean, one of the things about what you've mm-hmm. done at Sky has been to be there through the whole development of this idea of the 24-hour news channel or the yeah. constant news channel, and you've really pioneered that. What do you think has been the major shift that you've seen over that 20 years in terms of the way politics is done and mediated, I suppose, uh, to the people? It's been an enormous change. Um, when I started at Sky, we, we started up a bureau in, in Parliament House and it was just me and there'd never been 24-hour news channel coverage of Australian politics before. We'd seen CNN, we'd seen you know, Fox News had been there for a little bit and, and B Sky in London uh, as well with a 24-hour news channel. So we had a few ideas, but, no, but you know, in, in many ways, politics in Washington and London are far more dramatic uh, than, than what's happening here. So it was a very different thing to try and make Australian politics interesting hour after hour in, in an Australian context uh, and not always easy. Um, but you know, we we started with a few ideas, but really it was about making it up as we went along, feeling our way, what worked, what didn't. Um, and know, being serious about politics, like so being, being serious to- about totally it, dedicated yeah. to politics. That's right. And and treating our audience like uh, viewers who wanted to know more about politics weren't just watching the six o'clock network news where the politics story might be, you know, halfway down the bulletin. These were people engaged and interested in politics and we wanted to treat them uh, with respect and seriously. So, yeah, we covered it in a lot of detail, a lot of depth, you know, t- at times, and you know, sitting there in the studio with me mm. many, many times over the years, you can get right down the rabbit hole on some issues. But the audience for that, you know, news channel purpose uh, like that, they're interested, they're into that. So it was a different different type of journalism. So that that changed, I think, a lot of the way the political process uh, started. It took a while, but you know, when we started to get um, backbenchers coming on for panel discussions, I mean, you see it everywhere now, mm. but I can tell you back when we started doing this, we copped a lot of resistance from the Prime Minister's office and the Opposition Leader's office in particular. They didn't want these backbenchers uh, getting on television and saying the wrong thing, saying something that was slightly off what the talking points of the day were. And there was great risk they saw in doing that for very little reward because there was a, such a small audience. Um, so we caught a lot of resistance from that. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting. You know, a lot of MPs got pulled and told, don't go and sit in the Sky studio. Uh, eventually things changed. They all understood this is an important part of the conversation now and a good way for politicians to get the message out in from a number of different uh, faces uh, in a number of different ways. Sure, they don't always agree, but I think that's been a really good thing for transparency, for opening up debate. And, and as I say, since then, we've got the ABC News channel. We've got lots of panel shows everywhere doing this now. Um, and sure, they can get tedious at times, but they... What's, they, what's interesting about those yeah. backbench interviews, right, is that that's sort of like the beginning of the sort of politics we kind of see today, which is, you know, like, we, you know, so, so very many years ago, like the 50s and 60s, it was all about backbenchers talking to their constituents. You had to like, yeah. you know, get votes on on the street corner, right, yeah. or with a megaphone. And then TV comes along and that sort of centralises everything into leaders. And then, yeah. you know, what you guys were doing with Sky News is once again starting to open up that space, which is why you would have had so much resistance from the prime minister and the opposition leader. Um, and that's sort of been turbocharged by you know, vehicles like Twitter or an in- Instagram and a Facebook because MPs have a platform in which they can talk. So, I mean, I guess, like, where do you think this sort of stuff is kind of going or do you think that it's sort of outside the realm of, like, what the sort of formal press gallery 
is doing and it's sort of moved beyond yeah, it that. It is a little bit. I think the social media um, development was even a bigger one than our arrival as a news channel and how that 24-hour news cycle sped up. I think social media has accelerated that enormously. That really, and, and you know, you guys remember this, when um, Rudd was uh, deposed as, as Prime Minister, that was the period when Twitter really um, landed on mm. the Australian political media map. Uh, and since then, it's changed a lot. Um, yes, it does give, uh, it, it, well, it gives a megaphone to everybody, but particularly politicians. Um, where's it going? I think this is a really interesting uh, point we're at because I think, you know, we've seen this for some years now, uh, falling trust in all sorts of institutions, media, but politicians as well, right? And this is a problem the parties are particularly trying to grapple with. We're searching for authenticity and not finding it in our traditional media outlets. The politicians who can crack that, who can find a way to speak with an authentic voice, be it on social media, be it on mainstream media, however they do it, that's going to be the future. I don't know what the answer is right now, but occasionally you hear it or see it and you go, that's interesting because it's authentic. Um, that's the secret ingredient that I think they've got to find now to get to reconnect with voters. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, it, it's almost like if you can find someone with courage to speak their mind mm. and who will from time to time encounter a bit of turbulence, a mm. bit of blowback from their own side, uh, may perhaps occasionally say, Something a little more abruptly than uh, you know is wise or whatever, mm. but you, you you will find that person cutting through, and you know because there's a lot of sort of blather in the in the political space. There's a lot of yeah. Uh, we saw those leaked to- talking points just a few weeks ago. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. So and and so it's interesting actually. I was just thinking as you were talking before about mm. the development of Sky and the advent of you know these backbenchers coming on was, it, well, thank God for it really because it was. Um, it's a countervailing process to the other processes w- which has been going on, which is the sort of centralization and professionalization of political messaging to the point where leaders' offices on both sides, in the opposition and in the and mm-hmm. in the governing party, uh, control everything. And, and they try still and, try and do it. Oh, they still I try mean, and do there it. There was but a story, was it last week, was, uh, Craig Kelly, who may not be everyone's cup of tea, but he's someone who in the Liberal Party speaks the conservative view very strongly yeah. as often as he can. Uh, the, the Prime Minister's office told him and banned him from going on q and I mean, it, it, it comes yes. down to this control. It's mm. still there. That's their instinct is trying to stop those who are a little bit outside the guide rails. We'll talk a little bit more about control on the Labor side after mm. the break. But just before we uh, take a break, I wanted to uh, just mention about Josh Frydenberg, the mm. Treasurer. Uh, as we record today uh, on Monday, he's t- on tomorrow, that is Tuesday, going to be giving the first or it's, it's, it's the uh, annual Australia and the World Lecture. This will be the second of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a chance for the Treasurer to really, um, I guess, lift his gaze and and give us an idea of where he thinks the Australian economy is, where he thinks the international economy is, all the different things that are happening in it, and what are the sort of future threats and opportunities, I guess. And I think it's going to be quite an interesting a test for the treasurer because you know obviously treasurers can get bogged down a bit in the nuts and bolts of the budget and um, you know we know my FO the the mid year economic and fiscal outlook will be coming out in a few weeks um, but this is going to be quite interesting to see um, the rhetoric and the vision that uh, the federal treasurer has for Australia. I agree. I think this is a great opportunity for Josh Frydenberg. Don't forget he's deputy liberal leader as well as treasurer. So mm. um, he does have the um, the scope to be able to talk, 
outside his particular um, portfolio. But this really does fit within his portfolio. I think people would like to see a bit more vision about where Australia's economy is going to fit in the global uh, economy in the in the decades to come. Uh, you know, how long can we rely on our resources? Our mining industry is uh, a backbone of our exports and our our global economic engagement. Um, how do we move into you know some of these future economic opportunities? Uh, in the digital space uh, and so on. Um, and the environmental space. And the environmental and the space, space and the opportunities there. Albanese just spoke about this, didn't he, in his first mm. vision speech. So I think we'll hear a bit of that, well, hopefully, from uh, Josh Frydenberg. He's a fascinating politician. Um, he is one of the most energetic politicians. Yeah, relentless relentlessly. He reminds me in that regard, but not many other regards, of Kevin Rudd in his in his energy, his relentlessness. Mm. Um, Kevin was a lot more self-focused, I would say, but in terms of <laughs> giving speeches, writing opinion articles, um, getting out there, I don't know what you guys think, but I agree. And Kevin maintaining relationships as well. He's yes, very good at maintaining yes. relationships. You know, he's got he's got uh, many friends inside the, the Liberal Party. Obviously, uh, in order to be deputy leader and, and yeah. become treasurer, he needed to have quite a bit of support. There there's some pretty hot competition for that job. Some people who've been around perhaps longer than him. Um, he's also very smart. Um, don't, don't forget. I mean, it's a very good point you raise about getting the deputy leadership because he just. Warn this whole national energy guarantee experience, yeah. right? Which was the the final catalyst for bringing down Malcolm Turnbull and the yeah. party imploding. And yet, even though it was his baby, they put him in and very strongly backed him in as deputy leader mm. over the other contenders. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think he's a, he's one to watch. But it, it, it will also be interesting in terms of the growth of him as treasurer because we've had some very dominant treasurers. We've had some less dominant ones, but we've had some very dominant treasurers. When you think of people like Paul Keating and Peter Costello, people who have had who have had a lot of sway inside their governments, the governments that they've been treasurer mm-hmm. of, um, and who have. Um, you know, been very powerful in the parliament. You know, they've really sort of um, been able to dominate. They've the been debate. able to dominate yeah. and sort of sketch out. Uh, you know, provide a sort of a policy framework for the governments within which they uh, serve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you listen to Paul Keating, he was uh, absolutely pivotal in terms of the the you know the shape and and direction of the Hawke government as well as uh, the mm-hmm. government that uh, Keating himself eventually went on to lead. Um, and and Costello as well was there for best part of twelve years. I mean, big changes, you know, and, and ended up with a you know very solid balance sheet as we know. Um, so yeah, it's going to be quite interesting to see how Josh Frydenberg kind of rises to this challenge. Well, well, I hope we sort of start to see the green shoots of the coalition's agenda, which I think will be interesting to all of us. Um, That's a very good point. You know, and I mean. Um, we are living through like a time of like profound change. We, we we sort of have talked about this several times on this podcast. And I think even though I think voters are terrified generally about what the changes in the economy are, like I think we really need to start hearing some sort of positive potential futures about what our what this country might look yeah, like. Yeah, particularly because they, they won on a very rosy agenda, really, of jobs and growth. It and was all surplus. Going, yeah, it was and all going to be great. Management. And and in fact, things have gone, things have soured quite a lot since then. Uh, you know, the we've had growth down forecast, you know, downcasts of growth and um, uh, downgrades, I guess is the right term I'm looking for. Um, I and, suspect he won't dwell too much on any of that in the speech uh, that he gives about no. what's happening. You're right. What's happened in the economy has been troubling. It's not what the government wanted to see. It's not what the government told us we'd see before the election. Yeah. But they do have to deal with that 
reality now and they I, do have to open up new opportunities. Well, I wonder if this government will grasp the nettle, right? Because, you know, they're, they're sort of – they're obsessed with the, with the surplus for, for good political reasons um, that are at least, I think, good in the very short term. But um, – you know, there's a sort of the, the the coalition's politics for a long time now has really just been predicated on um, almost sort of wishing to turn back the clock to sort of the mid two thousands and and the world has changed and mm. and that there's been an internal debate within that party about looking towards the future and looking towards the past and I guess Josh Frydenberg is interesting in the sense that you know he's able to talk both languages. Mm. Um, but I guess we'll sort of see what his dominance is in this party as to how much he can kind of push a new, a new path yeah, forward. Yeah, look, and he, his great passion, um, you know, I know certainly in his early, uh, earlier years has been foreign policy. Um, yeah, that's, that's where he worked with Alexander Downer and he's written and thought a lot about foreign policy. So weaving that together, this is an opportunity for him to weave. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Together that with the economic story, I think. I think the the other thing to watch for will be what he says on China, um, and this cuts beyond just the coalition. I think for Labor as well, for a country, uh, we really don't have a clear idea of our engagement with China over the coming economically over the coming decades. Um, you know, arguably we do need to be less reliant uh, economically on China. We do need to diversify our trade relationships. We've heard governments, you know, in the 20 years I've been there, talk about India a lot, hmm. uh, but that's never really kicked in. Uh, Scott Morrison will go there, I think, in January uh, yeah. again. But, it, you know, we've seen this over and over and over and over. How do we diversify our trade relationships beyond China? Um, what Josh Frydenberg can offer on that I think might be interesting. Yeah. Now, this podcast comes to you from the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and it's a joint production of Policy Forum and the ANU. And you can always contact us via a variety of means. The Twitter handle is APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum. Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And email us, if you want to, at podcast at policyforum.net. We'd be very eager to uh, obviously get your feedback. When we come back in a moment, we'll dig into Labor's review, what it said and what that means for the future of Australian politics. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, Anthony Albanese, the new Labor leader, or still new, I guess you'd say, um, has uh, addressed himself to the Labor Review conducted by Craig Emerson and Jay Weatherall. Uh, he's really um, hit that front on, Maria, by uh, doing a uh, – having the review was uh, 
you know, released, which in itself is significant because these reviews are not always released. This one was released uh, publicly. It's a 90-page document. It's, uh, as uh, they say, warts and all, or P- uh, Penny Wong called it searingly honest. And so that was on Thursday. And then on Friday, Anthony Albanese uh, fronted the National Press Club and, uh, you know, sort of articulated his view of things and uh, and took questions, some of them, um, you know, reasonably difficult questions to address. How do you think it's gone for him? So I, I spent the weekend reading the, the review. It's it's quite a good uh, read for a report. And, um, you know, what I think was actually interesting about it was that it was really quite uh, systemic and uh, kind of honest. Um, there was sort of not a lot of sort of mealy-mouthed uh, stuff in there. And so I guess what was really kind of interesting about the review and what seems to have taken a lot of Labor people by surprise was that um, – you know, they, they they did some quantitative analysis of voting um, voting behaviour, and they seemed to basically find that the people that they were trying to essentially help were the people that were the most likely to run away in fear from them. But I actually didn't see Albanese at the press club, but I believe you two did. Well, I, I, was I, there. I wasn't there, but Mark, right, so Mark you was did. So asking so, some of those pointy questions. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what did you make of the speech? Mark? Well, I actually thought that it was um, a really polished performance. I thought Albanese acquitted himself very well. Um, I think the process itself has been quite good. I, I, I do not criticise Labor for the process it's gone through. I think it needed to have a um, you know a, a, a very good look at itself and needed to be accountable for that uh, to its membership, you know, to its supporters, but also to um, provide an explanation for what happened and what uh, what theoretically at least won't happen again. Uh, that's you know really the idea of it. I thought his speech itself was was well structured. There wasn't a lot of detail there, but he did sort of outline this kind of four-stage process, the first stage of which was the review, uh, and then there's, you know, policy development and in the lead-up to uh, the national conference in Canberra at the end of next year and and finally, you know, the, the unveiling of policy. Uh, so I think it's going to be um, interesting to see, you know, clearly the challenge will be putting meat on these bones, but as a speech... Um, and as a form of communication, I thought Albanese did really well. You know, he, I, I was talking to him before, uh, the address at the, at the lunch. And when he got up and gave the address, it was the same person, you know, there, mm-hmm. I think this is one of his strengths that he is uh, very good at, um, at, you know, that authenticity thing works for him quite well. There, there's no sense of kind of projection of him being someone else once he's uh, in front of the microphone. And I think that holds them in good stead. Yeah, I, I've been reading uh, the report itself. I think it's been um, – it's, look, firstly, it's great that it's been released. Uh, I think you're right, Mark. This is not something it's that atypical. usually happens. It is atypical uh, and it's fascinating to read. Mm. I agree uh, that it is well-written uh, and I think it makes some honest uh, points. I think it, it treads uh, carefully when it comes to Bill Shorten. Um, it's very gracious. Very gracious. But, you know, when you do read the main elements as to why this report finds they lost, it's hard not to conclude that this is largely Bill Shorten's fault. They yeah. didn't have a strategy. Well, whose exactly. fault's that? They didn't have a campaign committee. Whose fault's that? Exactly. They had an unpopular leader. Obviously, that is Bill Shorten's fault. Um, where, I, where I also think it treads perhaps a little too carefully for my liking is policy. Uh, it, it doesn't really delve into I – mean, you're right. The, the most fascinating point is why did these 
low-income outer-suburban voters who the Labor policy platform was designed to help, not hurt in any way. Why did they run away, as you say, from Labor? I don't think it really answers that question. I don't think it really explains why that happened, apart from perhaps being a little scared. I, I think that's how bigger to get than the back. Labor Party, though. Mm. I think that's just a, a declining of trust in politicians themselves. And, and in some ways, what I guess is the sort of um, you know, Greek tragedy of all of this is that the Labor Party's strategy around policy was precisely geared to avoid being Tony Abbott and his mm. 2014 horror budget. Yeah, we're going to be honest. We're going to tell you everything well in advance. Exactly. No broken promises. Here's what you we're going to do. We're going to try to rebuild trust with the Australian people. But mm. I don't think, you know, the um, there's so much uncertainty generated from such a large number of changes. Huge number. I mean, it, the report's absolutely right. It nails this. It was cluttered. There were you know, multi-billion dollar announcements every other day. Uh, you know, who knows what the overarching story, strategy, pitch was meant to be. It changed uh, you know, day in, day out, let alone week in, week out. Where I think um, the difficulty still lies for Labor, because this report is right and others have made the point, you, you've got these two constituencies, the um, you know the progressives uh, and the high income inner urban, you know where we saw a swing to labour, and uh, the you know the working class or um, outer urban lower income voters who went the other way. How does labour knit together those two constituencies? I don't think this report explains adequately. Oh, no, it doesn't. How to do that? And I don't think Anthony Albanese has yet explained how to do that. He's giving no, a nod. He to- hasn't, but I don't know that you could expect the report to do that. Frankly, I think that mm. is a, that that's a that's an exercise in in policy design and political messaging that is going to be mm. constructed over three years and which will yeah. require a supreme you know, well thought through effort by the leadership and particularly by Anthony Albanese. His answer at the moment to that, and I think this is, you know, obviously it's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a rhetorical fudge at one level, but his answer is we do best when we bring people together. Now that is, I mean, Anthony Albanese is a big uh, acolyte of Bob Hawke uh, and Hawke won in 1983 after that sort of divisive period that had ended the Whitlam government, you know, Fraser and everything else. Hawk won in 83 with that fantastic slogan, bringing Australians mm. together. And that is... And where, how it won with for all of us. Yeah. So th- I think there's a lot to be said for that as a, as a goal. I think it's a difficult ask. Uh, I agree with you at that. I mean, it is yeah. difficult to reconcile these, these two groups. But Labor has to – that is the task really. If Labor is to be, as they say, a natural party of government or even an occasional party of government, it is going to need to find a way to do this because this is a big sort of structural schism, I think, in Labor's base. And And let's – That's his challenge. If you cut to the chase, it is the climate change policy that embodies that division right now. And that's why the coalition is absolutely exploiting that uh, and will at every turn. And, you know, that, that underlies why it's... Yeah, but as we've been discussing earlier in this podcast, I mean, they, they, they are on the defensive about climate change themselves at the moment with... Yeah, you they know, are at the moment the, with the drought and the bushfires. Perilous drought and, so and bushfires. But the, what I'm saying is that what, what underlies their positioning on that is they see the opportunity of wedging Labor between its progressive and... Uh, working class base. Well, Labor's answer is to articulate that issue much more strongly through the lens mm-hmm. of jobs, alternative jobs, you know, jobs in the in the uh, renewable energy sector, uh, hundreds of thousands of them, they say. Now, if they can get that message happening, if they can, you know, reframe this argument to be one of opportunity for uh, these, uh, you know, these constituents, particularly in the outer suburbs and the regions, mm-hmm. Uh, people who in the past might have been involved in fossil fuel energy, uh, you know, 
coal and so forth, then I guess they have some chance of doing that. That's I mean, definitely yeah. what they need to be doing, yeah. but whether they can actually They also not. need, I mean, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it, it is it is staggering to think back on the campaign that they weren't able to explain the cost, the impact of their climate policy. Uh, they took it to 2016, that 45% emissions reduction target and got away with it. But this time around, you know, they were left with their pants down on this issue. They were. And I remember that press conference. Uh, it was uh, about, you know, sort of day seven or eight yeah, of the campaign week, yeah. in, in Adelaide. Um, I think it was at Flinders uh, Uni or Flinders Medical Centre somewhere there. And Shorten just literally could not answer that question about what was going to be the cost to the economy. You know, how much yeah. was it going to take out of growth? Uh, and they and needed, the attitude became, how dare you ask that yeah, question? Yeah, the attitude. And, and, and they this need, was a question not just journalists were asking. Yeah. You know, you, you wonder why these um, – people in vulnerable industries were running away from labour, yeah. this is why. And give your candidates something to say. I mean, they're going to be all asked this question exactly. once it becomes an issue. And I, I, I thought that was the moment, I've said this before, but I thought that was the moment when Labor had taken its its climate position into the election as a positive and it became a negative right at that moment because it suddenly looked defensive about what this was going to do to the economy. Well, I think it sort of goes to another point that the report makes, which is that the opposition um, effectively ran that campaign as a government, right? And mm. so, you know, Labor was being asked questions about, like, what's your climate change policy going to cost? And, and you know, which, frankly, given the resources of opposition, even with the parliamentary budget office, are unrealistic, like, um, for them to be able to kind of answer that question uh, effectively because, you know, uh, introducing, like, a price on carbon doesn't – it's not a – discrete policy where you can say, well, 100,000 people will be affected. Like, it's it's system-wide. Mm, I mean, I agree with that. But I I do think they could have had some modelling done that would have given them a story to tell. You know, Ross Garner or someone else could have provided them with some, uh, you know, scope of the possibilities for this. And, and for I also, marketing and purposes, I, you, were, you were right. Well, yes. and I also think there was – there was a, a that was a moment wherein there could have been a much more sort of strident statement about the opportunities for the economy of the transformation. You know, um, when you talk to uh, people in this sector and and ab about the future, and they say, look, you know, the the, the rate of take up of renewable energy, the uh, reducing unit price of solar and so forth, has has been has surprised even us, right? And the potential for these things is exponential. You know, the, 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 there are opportunities here that are really going to be quite transformative and quite lucrative for those, you know, early adopters. That was the sort of rhetoric that Labor, I think, needed to be talking about at that moment rather than simply trying to move on to the next question, which was what Shorten was doing at that press conference. But and what, I think what, what is, what, yeah, you're right, absolutely right, and that's how they need to sell this um, and that's how they will sell it, clearly under, and, under Anthony Albanese, wherever they land. But what's the message to the um, Hunter Valley communities? You know, we saw a huge swing. It was, in fact, just over 20% primary vote swing, I think, wasn't it, against Joel Fitzgerald? Yeah, it was. Um, what's your message to that community? What's your message to a lot of the Queensland coal communities? I know Albo's talking about metallurgical coals. Fine, that's going to make mm. wind turbines and everything great. The Adani mine is not metallurgical. It's thermal. Hunter Valley is largely thermal. Um, what's your message to those communities? And I think this is sort of the, the point you actually raised at the beginning, right? Mm. Like the report doesn't say how they're going to knit together all of these no. communities. And the reality is the structure of politics now, right, where you've got social media, which means that you cannot say to Hunter Valley coal miners one thing. Those and jobs then, are coming to an end. Exactly. And, yep. you can't, and then say to, you know, inner Melbourne voters another thing. You, that, you can't do that anymore. No. And um, and I, I'm, that's one of the things I've, I've found really interesting about observing people on Twitter in particular, 
um, you know, people who are very angry and disenchanted Labor voters who, well, you know, I mean, on the weekend I saw um, some people sort of saying like, oh, Anthony Albanese has no values and doesn't stand up for anything. I'm just like, well, you know, he supported Medivac just to name mm. one, right, mm. in, in recent times. So, so these people are really kind of angry and upset. You've got your activists. You need your activists, but you can't you can't run policy for your activists because party membership in this country is less than five yeah. percent, and the people who are joining your parties are like you know on the edges of the normally distributed correct, correct. bell curve, right? <laughs> like, this is not the not this not, is the... Offend, not to no, offend anyone. No, but exactly, yeah. they're, they're pulling you to the extremes. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the challenge, the art of major party politics yeah. and major party political leadership. How do you please all these different communities and constituencies uh, with the one message? Well, I think we it's have to easy. we have to sort of circle back to like where where what kind of country is Australia going to be? What is the vision for the future that is inclusive of everyone? And I think that we've been asking this question now since about the, since the GFC, and no one really has well, no one has an answer that the public is willing to go along with. Well, I think we need to be fair to Labor though in this That's hard. Uh, that a lot of its agenda was directed towards people right across the middle uh, and. You know the the traditional base of the Labor Party. Uh, the fact is that yes. its communication of this and the uh, coalition's ability to frame Labor's agenda as being you know too woke or too extreme about um, you know what it was going to do in the climate change space or whatever, what it was going to do with you know a so-called death tax or retirement tax or whatever. You know all of those things. Uh, you know really did did harm Labor, but a lot of its platform was designed to be quite centrist and reaching across. Um, and that's why Labor was in a competitive position for the you know the entirety of the term. Well, I mean, we've been talking about stuff that benefits Labor for the last six years, you know, housing, inequality. These are all like health. These are all things, climate change. These are all things that are really more in Labor's kind of quadrant. And, and, the, and, I, and I think the thing is, and this is the challenge for the coalition, is that none of these issues have actually been resolved. They have not resolved a single no. one of these issues because they are intractable. Um, in the, you know, with the current policy settings, like, you know, we're not going to see a, a change in the way housing operates with the new 5% guarantee loan thing, right? No. And, and, and these problems aren't going to go away unless the economy massively picks up. Um, so we can kind of quote unquote forget about them. And I, I can't see that happening either. So, so, you know, um, we're at the change of a big policy cycle and both parties are going to have to, um, provide a new pathway forward. And I think it's that politics will be really interesting. Mm. If I think else. you're right. I think that's a really interesting point uh, that we're at the beginning of a new cycle of yeah. where are the where are the fault lines going to be? Um, and this is where Claire O'Neill in Labor gave a really interesting speech yeah. about some of those fault lines, um, you know, being about the digital divide but uh, between generational wealth divide about some of the, you know, these are the big uh, fault lines emerging, uh, existing in our economy. Um, you know, Labor, I mean, just coming back to Labor's last campaign, I mean, you're right, they were trying to, um, you know, do the right thing by their base and their constituency, but it was just so many different things. Childcare workers, let's pay them more. Uh, cancer care, let's, you know, make that free. Dental care for seniors, okay, here's a pot of money for that. You can't argue against any of these things, but it was just so... Um, it wasn't coherently a whole, no. yeah. Uh, which, I mean, and that was another kind of sort of interesting footnote in the report, right? Was that the way they would, they, the way they talked about the way Labor's research was done 
which was essentially, you know, they, they had like a quantitative arm, which the report was really kind of funny about. They sort of said, oh, it might have been too confusing and it might have been one more data point. But actually, like, the it sounds like the quantitative data Labor was commissioning was actually of a fairly high quality and allowing them to be able to kind of uh, – predict better which voters would be interested in A versus mm. B. And then a qualitative arm, but what they were basically saying was, which was focus groups, and what they were basically saying what the problem was is that um, because they were constantly waiting for an election to come, they were never really sort of using their research to guide like the overall structure or the overall strategy. Instead, they were like using it to sort of test whether or not these ads would work or, mm. Um, mm. you know, like whether, you know, so they – so they were sort of they had made they had they had used the research to confirm and deepen the assumptions they had already baked in and perhaps that is one of the reasons why we didn't see the changes we needed because they didn't have the institutional organization like they didn't have the committee to, to run these things is obviously these are all things run out of they, they should, yeah, You're right. And these are all important recommendations from the review and these are things they should be able to fix. You know, we're talking about how yeah. they manage stuff, uh, like how you use research, how you set up a committee, how you have the proper feed. All of this is, you know, pretty basic stuff they should be able to get right. And you think in, um, you know, what are we, two and a half years from now, they may not have Clive Palmer spending $60 million against them in the election campaign. Scott Morrison will have three more years of baggage than he had, you know, going into the last election. If they can get some of those managerial things right within their campaign structure, um, you know, they're, they're not they're every chance of winning the next election is what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, the, I think the idea right. as long as they can do something forever. about that primary vote, which is just so tragically low, yeah. it was 25 percent in, in in Queensland and 33 percent roughly uh, nationally, which is just too low. There's Worst a poll out today that's showing that it's climbed a bit um, and puts uh, two-party preferred, the, the, the two sides on 50-50, which is kind of interesting, except mm. entirely abstract, I would argue, this far from an election. I mean, what does it actually mean? Probably not a great nothing. deal. Um, exactly. Do, here's, a, here's a couple of quick questions for you. What do you think that um, Bill Shorten would have won had Malcolm Turnbull stayed as Prime Minister? Uh, well, look, it's... I, I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I think he would have yeah been in a better position. I, I think he had. I mean, we saw the Longman campaign by election campaign, which uh, I thought Shorten nailed mm. that. You know, his messaging. What was it? Um, uh, um, hospitals before banks, or yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Better, better hospitals, not bigger banks. And Turnbull yeah. was still carrying the bag. That's right, was yeah. still carrying the baggage of the company tax cuts at mm. that point, and yeah. you know, pretty promptly after that, Longman result got rid of them finally. Mm. Something you should have done a long time earlier. Um, yeah, I, I thought Shorten did have Malcolm Turnbull's. Uh, but therein lay the the problem, really. Uh, Labor did unexpectedly well in those by elections. Labor had done unexpectedly well in 2016, and so to an extent. Uh, this, this all, yeah, this all, all complacency, hubris, um, and also a, a surfeit, to be fair, as you yeah. were saying before, of honesty in the sense that there was this sense that we're going to win, so we're going to put together a very comprehensive program so that the voters completely understand what we're going to do and the mandate is going to be very clear and our authority will be very well established. And, and, and it all seemed – there were plenty of commentators, and I was one of them, who were praising at least the ethic of that. 
uh, of, of being yeah, of having getting, a lot of policy out there, there. Detail out yeah. there earlier and explaining how um, it's all being paid for. And we've now seen that look, there are just limits to what you can do from opposition for a start. But also, as I say, there's these expectations that came from how well they unexpectedly did in 2016, and it sort of sowed the seeds yeah. of. Uh, there are so many what ifs, though. If you look back, I mean, if, well, if, he, if Turnbull had survived, right, and mm. the party, the Liberal Party, had backed in his national energy guarantee, yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah, he might have won. Yeah. He, if they'd been a united force, and that we finally settled the energy and climate. But, you know, yeah. debacle uh, and, you know, we've done gay marriage and we've, all these things. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, who knows? The challenge for Labor now uh, immediately, of course, is um, going to be what policies do you ditch? As you say, there was like 250 costed policies out there. And I think the, the first one that's going to go, from what I'm told, uh, is the one – I know franking credits and negative gearing get a lot of attention, but, you know, there was also that budget repair levy, yeah. uh, it, an extra 2% on top of the top income tax yeah. rate. Yeah. Um, that's the first one that's going to go. Yeah. Um, none of them have been killed off formally yet, but that, that one will go before any of them because it's – There's a bit of cover for it getting rid of it. That is the budget <laughs> is repaired. <laughs> that's <laughs> the right. <laughs> but you know what? All this policy work that Labor has done, right? Like that that will that will hold them in good stead at the next election because what we should not see is um parties not actually do the work, right? And we sort of saw this with the the coalition in the minority government. Like they pretty much everything they had sort of taken to the 2010 election, they just sort of put in a bay marie and kept adding <laughs> water and kept it warm, right? Because they were waiting for the government to fall. Those democracy savoys were <laughs> would have been pretty crook by then, I reckon. That's, that's right. And so, you know, and so it's not surprising that we sort of saw what happened with the 2014 budget where Abbott was, you know, determined not to be the next Malcolm Fraser, right? Mm. So so the lesson shouldn't be you don't do policy, but, you know, you don't – it's really important to do thinking, um, but then you don't necessarily have to say absolutely everything. It's all got to be in a framework. And so that's like what's the framework first? What are our assumptions first? How do policy – how does policy sort of hang off that? Mm. Um, yeah. Well, the danger for Labor, though, will be as, um, you know, sure, it may not take the franking credit policy as is to the next election. It may not take the negative gearing policy as is to the next election, but you can be sure that Scott Morrison will remind everyone that this is what Labor really believes in, like like Labor does with work choices, like Labor does with the GST. Mm. And Medicare. Uh, exactly. It's constantly reminding yeah, everyone. You've had a look into their soul. This is what they stand for. Can you ever for? really yeah. discard unpopular policies? Yeah. And Penny Wong made the point the other day uh, that um, she conceded this point that Scott Morrison is a brilliant political strategist. Yeah. I think that has become clear. He's, uh, his, his instincts are very good. He's trying to position himself as really a first-term government. And that's what I think is the real danger for Labor here is that what we just witnessed was essentially 1998, you know, the, um, the, the election that Labor could have won but didn't after the, you know, the first term of the Howard government. And then, of course, Howard was there for an extended period of several elections after that. And I don't think that's tenable for this government, though, just because um, well, we, we, we still have all the systemic problems that we did beforehand. And unless the global economy like massively kicks up, those problems will all need to be addressed, which that, is what that, Howard that, did have. That's true. But I think one of the lessons from this election, and we've seen it in elections around the world, is that, is that people at times of insecurity do lean conservative or they look for those parties which are offering, in a sense, perhaps in some cases less answers or fewer answers, but they're not proposing risk. You know, they're not putting new and unknowable vari variables into the into the economy or into the political situation. And uh, um, 
it's, it's not altogether certain that if the economy were to turn south, for example, that that would actually disadvantage the government, notwithstanding that it ran on a jobs and mm-hmm. economy agenda. Well, I guess it would growth. depend on how Labor was able to frame yeah. the government. Yeah, it does. And, and Scott Morrison. This, In particular. Uh, this will be a lot about Scott Morrison, his character, his integrity. Labor is doing as much as it can right now and chipping away at Scott Morrison's um, credibility, honesty, et cetera. You know, they're, they're trying to brand the guy a fake, a liar, a, a fraud. Um, you know, they're, they're jumping on um, uh, Brian Houston's story. Legitimately so. There are fair questions about that, but trying to use each one of those, and they'll be hoping for more of them over the next this couple is, of this years. This is the guy that was on the invite mm-hmm. list for the uh, the White House dinner. And, Correct, uh, the pastor who, uh, you know, was um, allegedly a pedophile protector uh, is the allegation. Um, the, you know... <laughs> It tells us a number of things, that story, doesn't it? Why did Scott Morrison want this guy at this big bang state dinner at the White House? And then why has he been so secretive about, you know, confirming whether or not the White House knocked him out after Googling his name? <laughs> um, but it, what I'm saying, these are examples that Labor will seize upon every time to chip away. At, they know that the, the, the coalition's win uh, this year was a lot about Scott Morrison. The coalition's chances in 2022 will be all about Scott Morrison. Yes. Yeah, policy matters, don't get me wrong, but a hell of a lot sits in the hands of the leader. Well, we've gone a lot longer than we normally do here, and I'm not surprised because this discussion could just keep going on. There is uh, so so much uh, to talk about, and it's been great to have you here, David, uh, doing that. We'll have to have you in again at some stage. Uh, So uh, join us again for Democracy Sausage. Goodbye from me, Mark Kenny, and from Maria and David Spears. Bye bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.